Good evening, everyone. It's really good to see you all here. In the film Manhattan, uh, Woody Allen is pining after a, a girl that he loved and has left him. And he's wondering why life is worth living. And he says, it's a very good question. Well, there are certain things, I guess, that make it worthwhile. Like what? Um, okay. Well, for me, I would say Groucho Marx, to name one thing. Willie Mays, baseball player. The second movement of the Jupiter Symphony. And um, Louis Armstrong, recording of Potato Head Blues. Um, Swedish movies, naturally. Sentimental Education by Flaubert. Marlon Brando. Frank Sinatra. Those Incredible Apples and Pears by Cezanne. The Crabs at Sam Woe's. And then he says, Tracy's face is the girl that he's pining after and that's the impetus for him to go chasing after her. But his list there, that list of classic things, are probably not your list of classic things, but the classics are classics for a reason, aren't they? There are lots of films that disappear, but The Searchers by John Wayne, John Wayne at his height, John Hughes at his height, continues to be regarded as you know, one of the great films. Oftentimes, book lists of, of great books um, will have um, you know, new entries come in, these sorts of things, but very often there'll be a core that continues to be on those lists. The classics are classics for a reason. Philippians 4.8 is a classic verse for a reason. It's probably not too good to be highlighting specific verses and saying that these are, are favoured or these are classics. Obviously, the Bible as a whole, as a complete, is important. But I suspect Philippians 4.8 is one of the more familiar verses, particularly from the New Testament letters. I suspect you've probably seen it in a card or in a, a wall plaque or in an internet um, picture at some stage or another. If Daniel was doing his um, Wednesday night list of, of words to study, he could probably draw half a season's worth of word studies just from this one verse. And so um, tonight I want to look at this one verse and, and just draw from it. Again, things that I'm sure aren't really a revelation to you. They aren't going to be um, a great theological insight. But I think they're worth uh, remembering and they're worth thinking on. This is what Paul urges us to do, doesn't he? To start with the end in mind. He tells us to think on certain things. And he tells us the reason why. He tells us so in the verses before it and the verse after it. It's so that we can have access to peace, to the, the peace of God, the peace that surpasses all understanding. If you're not interested in peace, if you like fractious relationships, if you like picking fights, if you like warfare, um, this lesson's not really for you. Um, the gospel probably isn't something that you're going to be seeking after. The gospel is a gospel of peace. It's a gospel of repairing a damaged relationship, that between us and God. 
It's about trying to make things right, trying to improve, trying to return back to a state that is um, one in keeping with how God wants and thinks that we should live. And so we're given the tools. The New Testament gives us the tools in order to attain this peace or at least to approach this peace. And I think this peace is well worth our effort, well worth our thinking. We're told to think on these things because from where we think, it leads to our deeds, to our works, to what we do. And what we do, our deeds, allied with our thinking, leads to our character. It helps to form who we are and our values and how we live by them. And our character forms ultimately our destination, both here and in the hereafter. And so what we think and how we think and what we think on is kind of important. Proverbs reminds us of this. Proverbs 23 and verse 7. He's speaking in the context here of a miser, of someone who's a bit miserable, a bit you know, mean towards other people. But it's sort of been extracted and turned into a general principle a little bit. But the first part of 23.7 says, For as he or as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Again, in keeping with Proverbs' ability to reduce really grand statements into a few words. But there is truth in that. Likewise, Proverbs 25 and verse 28 says, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Again, what we think, what we turn our attention towards, what we refuse to give attention to, it matters. And it informs how we live our lives. And so we come to these concluding words in um, the letter that Paul writes to Christians up in a, a Roman garrison called Philippi. And um, we'll focus on verse 8, but I think it's just really important to, to see these leading in verses where, again, he's giving us more of the, the flavor, more of the context, more of the tools about how to live a life of peace, how to live a life that takes hold of what Christ essentially wants of us and has given to us. And he talks about joy. He says it twice, you know, that we are to rejoice, to take joy in God, in, in what we have. He says that we are to be gentle and that we are to let our gentleness be known to other people. Again, you know, fractious, spoiling for a fight. You know, these things are easy. These things are common. The Christian ethic calls for joy. It calls for gentleness. He says, don't worry. He says, don't be anxious for things. Anxiety consumes energy. Anxiety puts us on edge. Anxiety clouds the mind. Anxiety imagines all sorts of dark futures that aren't necessarily going to be true. He says, replace that anxiety. Replace it with prayer. Replace it with letting God know what your troubles are. Replace it with trusting in what God has said. 
including that some things are going to be uncertain. And that's okay. Because there's things that you can do. There's things that you can control. There's things that you can focus on. And if you're able to do that, then the peace of God, a peace that is so profound that it surpasses understanding. It's not to mean that it's something mystical or something unattainable, but just that it is something that we so often miss, that we so often are unable or unwilling to grasp. He says it will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It will envelop them. It will protect them, protect them from all of the wickedness and the um, willful sin and ignorance and ugliness of the world. It will protect us not from everything, you know, thing that will make you squirm in your stomach and everything that will make life difficult, but in the long run. It will watch over you. What are these things? What are these tools that we can put our attention on rather than all of the worries that our mind can run to? Well, he says, whatever things are true. And the phrasing is really interesting here, isn't it? And I haven't gone in and looked at all of the original Greek and all of how it's there, but I'm going to trust the translators and trust the the English that we have, and I think the English is plenty beautiful and plenty poetic enough. He says, whatever things are true. He's not saying these 15 things are true and focus on that. He's trusting to your judgment. He's trusting to our understanding. He thinks we're plenty capable enough and plenty intelligent enough of discerning what things are, in this case, true and not true. And he's saying, whatever is true, think on that. Focus on that. Truth is in short supply, isn't it? Falsehoods abound. Falsehoods abound in marketing, whatever gets the next sale. It might mean you have to stretch the credibility. It might mean you ignore the flaws of a product. It doesn't matter. You get the sale, you bank the sale. You get the next sale. Consume, consume, consume. Again, you know, politicians are an easy punching bag, but they're an easy punching bag because they keep lying. They keep declaring falsehoods. They keep twisting. They keep evading. They keep not being honest about the state of things. And then when they're called out on those things, they'll sack the public servant or they'll sack the underling or they will um, you know, use more weasel words and, and narrow down into sort of arcane definitions and these sorts of things. And, and they'll answer a different question to that which was asked. And you know, politicians as examples in, in lots of areas. You see the chief executive whose company was found out doing this, that or the other. And you know, the banks, the big oil companies when there's an oil spill, whatever it might be. Um, but they'll, you know, they don't hire truth experts. They hire public relations people. They hire spin doctors. They don't give us the unvarnished truth. They don't take on responsibility and accountability. 
And these things have flown through into our internet feeds. And again, I'm sure you're very familiar with all of these things. And before that, it was you know, newspapers and, and wealthy barons who would buy up newspapers so they could control you know, the messaging that would get out. And um, you know, the, the military in Vietnam, they had journalists embedded in there. And Vietnam was famous for its, its truth in reporting. And that was quite negative towards Vietnam, and it, it helped to, to change attitudes towards that war. And of course, there were mass protest movements and demands to, to cease that war. And so in the future now, journalists that get embedded into you know, theatres of war um, have much tighter controls about what they can report on and what images get sent back from the front all in order to control the messaging to, you know, we're not losing the war, all of these things. And both all sides do it. Nobody ever admits to losing a war, even while they're on their knees. The point is, is that falsehoods abound, but we need to be focused on things that are true, both in the, in the minutiae, in the small things in life, in the ways in which we talk to one another, in the ways in which we hold our children accountable for even the small things that they might try to get away with, right through to the grand things, the true things of um, what the gospel claims, what Christ, you know, when he says, I am the good shepherd, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that excludes others. Christ says quite explicitly, if there's other people trying to climb into the sheepfold, they're robbers, they're thieves. Don't believe them. They are telling you lies. And many, many, many folk have tried to climb into the sheepfold and have tried to claim this, that and the other, speaking religious falsehoods. Whatever is true, we need to train our minds to push away falsehoods, to see these things for what they are, to see through them, to teach those around about us to desire truthful things. And sometimes it's messy and sometimes it's difficult and sometimes it's inconvenient, but it doesn't make it any less true. And indulging in falsehoods is not the right approach. He says, whatever things are noble, some versions may have whatever things are honest, um, the idea there is sort of this um, you know, reverential or awe-inspiring. Um, you know, there might be like a, a rabble that's quite noisy and a crowd and whatever, but if you come into a, a museum, for instance, or if you come into a funeral setting or, or other places, perhaps a, a grand cathedral, a place where you're hushed, a place where you're quietened, a place where your thoughts are, are elevated, where it's designed to think about important things. You know, the idea of um, nobility is the idea of um, a sense of uh, importance, a sense of um, not so much ruling for ruling's sake, but ruling um, out of uh, you know, a higher obligation, a high degree of, of service, a high sense of things. And so those things that are really important to our lives, there's lots of trivia and trivial things and some of it's 
fun and important and you know hobbies and all of those things are there but we can't just focus on those to the exclusion of important things there's a fellow that I listen to quite a few of his podcasts and this year in 2020 he's trying to read um, 75 books this year and he's trying to read 75 books because he felt like his brain was going to mush like he was so focused on the internet and so focused on the shallow things that he really wanted to um, focus much more importantly uh, or you know, get his mind back onto some more noble things. And books tend to capture you know, longer thoughts, deeper thoughts, more complicated thoughts than you know, 300 words on an internet page. He says, whatever things are, are just... So this idea of, of fairness, this idea of what is right, this idea of what is um, you know, um, able to be um, fair to all different parties, um, the, you know, the idea of, of lawyers um, involved in justice to make sure that you know, the accused is fairly treated and that a wronged party um, is fairly able to seek recompense, all these sorts of ideas. We need to be a people of fairness. We need to be a people who don't um, entrench divisions in society. We need to be a people who ensures um, that people have fair access to dignified ways of living and that people aren't dismissed, people aren't excluded, people aren't able to take advantage of the things that, that you and I might take for granted. And um, the Old Testament equally implores this. If you read something like Amos, you know, Amos tears strips off of his audience for the ways in which unfairness had infiltrated Jewish society, how the rich were really um, using their position to um, you know, charge exorbitant interest and throw debtors in jail and all these sorts of things. And you see this repeated throughout the, um, um, the, particularly the minor prophets, but you know, right throughout. And Christ does the same thing. You, you think through the people that Christ talks to, the people who Christ elevates. You know, it's, it's a woman giving two mites. It's a, a woman who's at his feet washing them. Um, it's a woman with hemorrhage. It's um, Zacchaeus who was too little to be part of the crowd, etc., etc., etc. We need to be people who think beyond the immediate to um, those that are uh, perhaps outside of our immediate view and to make sure that fairness exists where we can contribute to that. He says, whatever things are pure. So the idea of purity, again, is a strong element through the gospel, isn't it? This idea um, that sin and sinfulness pollutes things. Remember we were reading um, this morning in our Bible class from Ezekiel 34 and how um, this really sort of fantastic imagery but how the sheep and the rams had kind of trampled on the, um, the grass that was supposed to be the good pasture for people to eat and how they'd kind of muddied all the waters. And again, you know, we're familiar with this sort of thing. 
and that how that, that's what they'd done for the people, the, the leaders. Um, and so this idea of the things that are pure, the, uh, the things that are able to um, be unsullied by the you know, filthiness of sin, of coarse talking, coarse jesting, um, the ideas of, um, uh, you know, again, um, causing you know, divisions or demeaning um, certain people, certain groups of people. Um, all of these sorts of things are far, far away from purity. And we need to be thinking about, again, not some abstract concept, not in a way in which we you know, go around, aha, you, zap you, aha, you're not pure enough, you're out, aha, you, you know, this is the wrong way of viewing things. This is a, a personal responsibility. This isn't, and none of these things are about us you know, extrapolating them onto other people. This is about how do I control my thoughts? How do I be responsible for my thinking? And so how do I focus on pure things? How do I keep away from impure things? And it might be that I need to cease certain sources of entertainment. It might be that I need to refrain from certain friendships. It might be that I need to call people out and say, hey, I don't think that's appropriate for you to be talking about in the lunchroom or the way you spoke about that person really denigrated them. And I'm not sure if you were aware of that, but you should be. And you know, um, there are times in my life where I haven't done that, where I haven't actually had the courage um, to think on pure things and to call out those who were muddying the waters around about. And so these things require courage, they require um, dedication, consistency. He switches just from these descriptions to something a bit more emotional perhaps, this idea of the things that are lovely, the things that are beautiful in your life, the things that uplift your life. And for everybody that's going to be different. Maybe, again, a 1965 HQ Holden is the most loveliest thing in the world that somebody... Maybe for someone else it's a pair of sneakers that are really rare, Michael Jordan, whatever's. Maybe for another it's a garden and a, you know, gerberas or irises and tulips are just the most magical thing. Um, maybe it is seeing children play in a playground, you know, watching your own um, children grow um, again, you know, whatever. But whatever is lovely, because the things that aren't lovely drag us down. The things that aren't lovely, you know, we get black clouds in our life, we get focused, we get inward, we get enough of the, the negative things. And so we're being urged, you know, Stop navel-gazing. Stop with your chin down. Get your head up. Get your head out. There are lovely things in the world. God created a whole bunch of them. And sometimes we need to make time to be holy, make time for these things. Um, sometimes we have to build them into our lives. We can't be so busy that we never get to experience lovely things. And if we are too busy to be experiencing lovely things, if you can't think back to the last time that was you know, pretty immediate where you really felt, ah, oh, quieten the mind, that's really a lovely experience. 
then maybe some recalibration in our lives are needed. And again, I'm not saying that all of our life can be spent in museums and art galleries and you know, Hayman Island and all of these sorts of things. Um, but you know, there are lots of ways in which love manifests itself, including in the church, including acts that people have. Tenson getting up to help Rick hand things out. That's a lovely thing. It's someone thinking, ah, that person you know, has health things. How can I help? Bang. Should I get up? Should I not? What happens? Ah, just do it. These things we can take note of. He says of the last of the list, whatever is of good report, those things that are... Um, you know, can be communicated to one another, those things that people generally know to be good, generally um, reported to one another to be good. I'm sure you've been around people who are always contrary, always like spoiling to give the opposite opinion, always you know, picking apart holes or whatever else. And it can be tiring, it can be exhausting, and it can be frustrating. And yes, there are times where you need to you know, look at all sides, all that type of thing. But the things that are of good report are the things that you know, we, we agree on and we agree that are, are uplifting. And so, you know, again, those things, I think, are things to be celebrated, are things to be shared, and yeah, are things to be thought on. And then he says... Um, somewhat rhetorically, meaning he knows the answer already. He says, if there is any virtue, if there is any goodness, if there is anything worthwhile, if there is anything of value in these things, and of course he knows that that is true. He says, if there's anything praiseworthy in these things, in all of what we've talked about, what we've discussed, think on these things. He concludes this section by saying the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me. In other words, the reason you come to church, the reason you come to listen to boring lessons like this, the things that you have taught, the things that we've heard. You know, in Philippi, when this letter was read out, pretty similar in effect to what we're doing now. He said simply, these do. These do. That's the challenge, isn't it? To go and to take these things and to see where they are in our life and to train our brain to not get overwhelmed and to focus and to be able to, to filter, to be able to discern. And then do, think on those things. And the outcome, he says, the God of peace will be with you. If you need motivation, if you need something to spur you, he gives you the outcome, he gives you the end result. He tells you in no uncertain terms. You know, these things don't do because it's some philosophical um, problem that we can nut out, these things we don't do and strive for you know, because it needs a box that's checked or because I'm telling you to, so there, or because 
hellfire and damnation will consume you if you don't, he's saying the God of peace will be with you. May the God of peace be with us as we strive to think on these things.